whole style of German football changed under the Nazis. So before the Nazis, German football had this the style of it that, that, that we're familiar now of it being very kind of functional and very, very well organised. Before the Nazis took over, German football was regarded as being much more the beautiful game. Hello and welcome to this week's pod, when I'm speaking to Alex Gerlis, the best-selling author of espionage thrillers. We chat spying and football during the Second World War, how important it is to be true to the period, and we also discuss John le Carre, the great spy writer, and Frank Foley, the man who saved thousands of Jews from almost certain death. Alex is the author of Agent in Berlin and the most recent Agent in Peril, which has just been published. Links are in the show notes. We also discuss Klaus Barbie, the Nazi murderer based in France, and French resistance fighters. So there's plenty of great stuff in this week's pod. We're growing from strength to strength, and this is down to you, dear listeners. So I'd be so happy if you could mention this pod to your friends and family, and if you could bear to give me a review or subscribe, I'd be so pleased. If you'd like to get hold of me, I would love it. You can get me on the Twitter, at OllieWCQ. Or email history at aspectsofhistory.com. All links we discuss will be in the show notes, and I'll hand you over to me and Alex. Alex Gerlis, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. So, Alex, uh, thanks so much for joining me on this. and. I wanted to start by just introducing the series that we're here to talk about, which is the Wolfpack series, and the first of which is Agent in Berlin, and then you've got Agent in Peril that's just about to come out. If you just want to introduce that series, because and then we can talk a little bit about some of your other series as well, which um, uh, I'm also uh, very interested in. Sure. So the Wolfpack series um, starts with Barney Allen or as, as a, a new recruit to, to MI6. Um, he's, he's in his kind of 30s, 40s, so he, he's joined at a later age than one would have done, but he was looking for a new job and through the old school network, which is something incidentally which kind of peppers the books because it was like that in those days and possibly to an extent still is. Um, but Barney Allen joins MI6. Joins MI6. And one of the jobs that he's given early on is to start an alternative um, British spy network in Berlin. And that's based on the reality, which certainly was a, an aspect of MI6 in the 30s and, and possibly continued a bit after that, which was that the Foreign Office regarded espionage um, as slightly distasteful. They saw it as um, dirty work that really wasn't the, the, the work of diplomats. And certainly the, the Foreign Office um, w- wouldn't have fully approved of espionage against a regime like Germany. They, they, they would have approved of espionage against communists, which they saw as a big threat. Um, but the, the British Embassy in Berlin, can um, regarded the Germans as, you know, you, you, you've got to behave decently to them and they'll behave decently to us. And part of the, w- w- one of the aspects, one of the people that features in Agent of Berlin is Frank Foley. 
um, who is a real character because, I mean, a real character in, in more ways than one, but Foley was the MI6 station head in Berlin, but the Foreign Office wouldn't let him have diplomatic status. And he was based in the passport office away from the embassy. The embassy was um, uh, off onto the Linden behind the Adlon Hotel, whereas the um, the passport office was was just off the Tiergarten. And he had a full time job. I mean, running the passport control office was a full time job, as well as also being head of MI6 station. So there was this disdain which the Foreign Office had um, towards espionage. So the idea is that Barney Allen has to set up a new spy ring, uh, which he does. And there are a number of people that he manages to recruit, but two of them um, who appear in all three books. So Agents of Berlin, Agents in Peril, and the one that I'm currently writing, which is going to be called Agent in the Shadows, um, are Sophia and Jack. So shall I tell you a little bit about Sophia and Jack? Or am I just, just before yeah. just before you do, actually, uh, it's interesting you talk about it being the old boy network and the way MI6, You, it's almost the network that Barney is setting up. It's almost sort of a, 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 um, a network within a network because you have the passport office under Frank Foley. But then this new network is created as well. And... Uh, espionage was quite a it was a relatively new um uh certainly sort of office wasn't it i mean world war one was was when we saw the secret intelligence service mi6 sort of start in in earnest really so it's a relatively new um discipline isn't it yeah and 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 it wasn't just a new discipline but well the historians of espionage would would kind of go back hundreds of years and talk about how espionage existed, although that would have been primarily military espionage. Um, so espionage in itself, it's not brand new, but it becoming an institution and an organisation, it was was relatively new. And I think that what MI5 and MI6 struggled with, and also Special Branch, who, who've always been very much in that area as well, was the fact that a lot of people just disapproved of it. It, it, it wasn't just as I've you know, talked about that the Foreign Office were, were disdainful of the whole thing, but people weren't convinced about it. And so it wasn't seen. Uh, it didn't have the same degree of importance and prominence that perhaps it should have done. And of course, the MI5 and MI6 were sections of the War Office originally. So five and six Within, it was military intelligence. So within the War Office, there was a military intelligence section, which had about, at various times, up to about 16 different branches. So there was MI1, MI2, MI6, MI5, MI6, etc. MI9 famously was the section which dealt with um, prisoners of war, both British um, prisoners in in in, in Nazi Europe and, and also German prisoners over here. And, and quite a lot of these sections became obsolete. So MI5 and MI6 are, are the remnants of it. But essentially, um, it was part of the war office. And that's kind of, you know, what, one of the issues that they dealt with. So your characters then, you were just gonna, um, about to uh, explain the two agents that Barney's running in yeah. In Berlin or in Germany. Jack's more all over Germany, isn't he? 
Yeah, they're, they're, they're quite slow burners and, and he, he's quite intuitive, um, Barney, even though he's a relative newcomer um, to the world of MI6, he's actually quite good at it. Um, and I, I remember talking to someone quite senior um, in one of the intelligence agencies um, who was telling me that... Well, how, did, how did that happen, Alex? How did uh, you... That, well, it, it was some of the time, some of the time, no. Um, right. So, so in, 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 I, 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 I do have someone who um, is the father of a friend who absolutely won't believe me when I you know, say, he said, I know that you've been in British, worked in British intelligence. And I said, well, you know, I haven't really. And he said, well, that just proves it. So I kind of <laughs> think, well, well, that's fine, really. Um, but no, th- th- this is actually someone that I know. Um, and he was saying that one of the things that they, they look for when they're recruiting agents that MI6 is interested in is someone that's very intuitive by nature. Um, so, someone that can sum people up and that, that can work them out and show some degree of initiative. And although Barney is rather thrown in, he's actually been a, a steward for the jockey club, but, you know, it's not keeping the family in. Um, you know, he, he, he just doesn't want to carry on doing that. But he's, he's quite good being um spotting people um and he goes over to berlin with cover from the british embassy um in 1936 for the berlin olympics um and so that's a little bit of a backdrop to agents in berlin and while he's there he meets um, a senior ss officer who's a lawyer um apparently rather urbane etc etc and he's invited around him to dinner where he meets his wife and it becomes kind of evident that she's very much not a Nazi through one or two things that she says to him. And he's got his eyes on her as a potential agent. Um, but it's some time. This is 1936. So it's some time. It's, it's, it's well into the war before she's actually recruited. So her name is Sophia von Naundorf. And she does appear it, about halfway be, be, be in the middle of book one, Agents in Berlin, she becomes a fully-fledged British agent and a remarkably successful... And Sophia, Sophia, yeah. Sophia is not based on anyone... No, I'll, I'll, tell, you what, I'll tell you what happened with... So, so do, do you want me to start with the Olympics? OK. So, one of the first um, missions that, that Barney Allen goes on is he's sent over to... The, to Berlin for the Olympics, and that's thought to be kind of quite a good cover to be there and to look for potential agents. And he's a little bit um, not quite sure what to do, but being very intuitive, he, he's got his eyes open and he become he, he picks up a couple of what turn out to be successful agents. And in one of my previous books, um, in, in the print series, I was actually writing a scene where a British agent, well, he's Danish, but he's, he's working as a British agent, checks into the Excelsior Hotel in Berlin because the Excelsior was a very big hotel um, and by an Halter Platz. And most novels about Berlin feature the Adlon Hotel, which is like the most famous hotel in Berlin and still is the most famous hotel in Berlin. But the Excelsior was very big. It was destroyed. Um, by Allied bombing in the Second World War. So it, it's referred to less. Anyway, um, this guy checks into the um, Excelsior Hotel. And I just felt when I went back over the, the scene that it was missing something. So I just wrote in this woman who was kind of looking at him and observing him. 
and he notices her the next day. And she became quite an interesting character. He, he notices her because she's always wearing a, a kind of different type of hat. And she actually becomes a British agent who's there to keep an eye on him and rescues him. So I thought she would be a good character. So I made her the main character. So her backstory, which is how Barney Allen meets her, is she's the wife of a senior SS officer. He's invited around there to their apartment for dinner. Um, and through some things that she says to him afterwards in private, he clocks that she's an anti-Nazi. Um, but it's some time, he puts a number of feelers out, but it's some time before she's actually recruited, about halfway through agents in Berlin. So that's Sophia von Naundorf. Um, the other character who he also meets when he's over in um, Berlin for the Olympics is um, a young American sports reporter called Jack Miller. And Jack has been um, sent out to cover the Olympics. Um, and he rather falls in love with um, Berlin and with Germany, even though he's appalled by what he's seeing. He sees this as a, a really good story. Um, and he starts covering sport quite a lot because there's quite a lot of um, it's something that he finds he can do. And Barney, really, one of the things that Barney notices in, in a hotel is he's got into a big argument with a maitre d' um, who, because um, Jack has recruited um, a guy who was a Jewish lawyer as his like fixer and they refuse to allow him into the hotel. And he gets into a big argument and as a long as a consequence, Barney has his eyes on him and he ends up recruiting him. Although at first, of course, Jack Miller doesn't realise he's been recruited as a British agent. It's kind of rather late in the day, um, but he's very good at it once he starts. And so what what was interesting about Jack is that he is not really familiar with football, in at least certainly not football in, in Europe. And but he, he falls in love in love with that as well as, as falling in love with Berlin, doesn't he? Yeah, I mean, I mean, football or soccer, as the Americans would call it, was not um, was not insignificant. It was not unknown. In, in the States in the 30s. And he's from Philadelphia, where there was, you know, a bit of it around. But what is critical, and I got, you know, being a football fan, it was fascinating to kind of read into it, was the German foot, the structure of German football was perfect as a, an excuse to move around Germany. Uh, and so like Hamburg, which was an, um, one of the centres of German football, um, was a perfect place you know, to go and espionage the Ruhr cities like um, Gelsenkirchen and Essen and, and places like that all have the big football teams. Schalke, which is based in uh, Gelsenkirchen, is, was the football team um, in Germany in the late 30s. So um, it gives them an excuse to move around. But also Barney has got him these various commissions from regional papers in Britain. So he's got these freelance commissions to report on football. So he's got the excuse to go round and do that. And it just opened itself up very well. And the whole subject of German football, which I'm happy to talk about for, if you want, if you wanted me to for a minute, is, 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 was very much... Um, Absolutely, answered. yeah. Well, I think one of the... Well, I was interested in reading that, sorry to interrupt, it's just uh -huh. even after the war started, they carried on playing... Oh, yeah. Football, is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Whereas it, that wasn't the case in, in Britain, was it? Well, there was wartime football in Britain, but it was um, 
the, the were wartime football leagues, but it was very um, it was very diminished. It wasn't the same. There were a lot of guest appearances, so it, it, and it's not counted. If you look back on the records, it's not it, you know the teams um, didn't really have the same. Um, they had different players and a lot of guest players. The team I support, Grimsby Town, had some very famous players playing for them because of the the RAF and the, and the Royal Navy connections that the, the, the town had. Um, so you're, you're right, but in Germany they saw it much more um, as a way of of imposing the will of the regime, if you like, on people. So, so the Germans took took sport very seriously. Um, during the war, and they saw it was as a as a propaganda tool, but also as a way of getting over, if you like, their um, the whole philosophy about strength and about working hard and you know being very manly game. So much so that people say that the whole style of German football changed under the Nazis. So before the Nazis, German football had. Um, the, the, the style of it that, that, that we're familiar now of it being very kind of functional and very very well organized um before before the nazis took over german football was regarded as being what's the what's the right word for it um it, much more the beautiful game so when you think about how more like brazil uh, exactly how the brazilians play you know very free-flowing kind of playing with it, attacking players whereas it was a much more it became much more defensive um and there was a famous game which is which is actually covered in agents in berlin um but there was a famous game when they played and i think it was in Bern. i've got to um i should have had the details in front of me but they they played switzerland away and they lost 2-1 and goebbels was furious and they basically said if you lose your neck, well, one of the things Goebbels said is we mustn't have play any games that we're going to lose. And I think it was explained to him that wasn't always possible. Um, but the, the, they said, if we get another performance like that, all the players will be sent to fight on the Eastern Front. Um, so that was the case. And the, there were games being played in, in, the, in, in the, the, the German league until very late in the war. I mean, even there were get competitive games being played like in 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 March and April '45, which is hard to believe, but apparently it's true. That is mind-boggling, actually. Yeah. Wow. Um, imagine if Goebbels had been a um, a Grimsby fan or a Southampton fan, like <laughs> support. We'd better edit that one out. <laughs> <laughs> um, the Munich team of the 1930s and 40s, the Bayern Munich team, was not one that was particularly popular with the nazis was it um not not in the third not in the early 30s no i mean um it's funny because bayern munich has something of a reputation of being if you like the epitome of german football and very well organized etc etc and of course with munich being where the nazi movement started so i think people have always assumed that um that the, the club kind of reflects that in some ways but in fact it, it wasn't. And in the early 30s, around the time that the Nazis came to power, so around about 33, I think the owner, uh, I think the chairman was Jewish, and one of the coaches were Jewish, and a couple of the players were Jewish. And they, I think the coach and the players went to Switzerland. And the, apparently when Bayern were playing somewhere in Switzerland, 
they actually went to made a point of going to visit them, which didn't go down very well. The team that had the more re white right wing reputation in Munich was apparently 1860 Munich, which is you know, still in existence. I don't think it's in the Bundesliga. Um, so, yeah, it, it just goes to show that, you know, it goes a lot through politics, um, you know, it's just German football. Yeah, I suppose, yeah, the Aryan ideal of a um, healthy nation is yeah. well epitomised by the football team. So um, another um, interesting character that I think is hugely important in espionage during the war uh, and leading up to the war in particular in, in getting Jews out was Frank Foley, who's an incredible person. <laughs> and and it was it was great. He's sort of a, a figure in the novel, but doesn't play a huge part. Um, but he played a huge part in the war, didn't he? Or just leading up to the war, didn't he? And, and during the war, actually. During the war, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I, I, it's always a little bit of a dilemma that when you're dealing with a real person of how much you um, have them as a character, as an active character in the novel. And so Foley that I, I refer to Foley um, by, um, I suppose I suppose Foley is there and we talk about him without him kind of featuring in dialogue, etc. Um, but it's interesting because the book that I'm writing at the moment, which is set in Lyon during the Second World War, um, where which was an enormously significant city in terms of the resistance. And the Gestapo was run by Klaus Barbie, um, who was very notorious. So I do feature him as a character with dialogue, etc. But Foley, um, I kind of felt that I, that I didn't really want to do that. But he did run the British Passport Control Office, um, which was the front for, for the MI6 station. But he used the British Passport Control Office um, for two things. One is as a place to recruit agents. So a lot of the Germans who were coming through it provided him with an enormous amount of intelligence. And also by going above and beyond um, what, what was kind of his job to um, give um, visas um, to Jews desperate to get out of the country. So the, the thing was, in the before the war started, it was perfectly possible for Jews to emigrate from Germany. I mean, it would cost it cost them a lot of money, and they could take very little with them. But one of the problems wasn't so much getting out, but you had to have somewhere to go to, and that was the problem. And Frank Foley issued something like ten thousand um, visas that enabled people to get out of Germany and, and come to this country. So once the war started, he had to leave, and then he went to Stockholm, I think, and, and, and worked there. So he was a, a British agent there, and then he ended up um, back in this country and, and retirement. And it was only after he died, which I think was in the early 60s, that it became um, that the story of what he was up to came out. Um, and he was a remarkable man, and he just went out of his way to issue as many visas as he possibly could. So I didn't want to um, go too much into detail on the agent in peril plot, because that's the one that's not it's it's just coming out at the moment. July. the uh, Yeah. Um, but we we have Barney's network and we're moving further east now, aren't we? Yeah. Well, east, east and west. So in agent in peril. Right. It, it, it starts in and some of the focus is on Poland. Um, so the, the, the key in all of my novels, I, I look for 
a particular kind of piece of history of the Second World War, of, you know, it's a military operation or, or some aspect of it. I, I can start with that and build the plot around it um, with, with kind of subplots and, and, and other um, strands that, that, that actually happen. So I was keen to involve Poland. So the main um, real event, if you like, of, of Agent in Peril is the Allied bombing of the Ruhr, which took place from March to, to July 1943. But I came up with this idea. Uh, I mean, one of the big issues about the, the Allied bombing campaign was that it was remarkably inaccurate. They just didn't have the, the technology um, in those days to be very accurate. And hence, what, one of the things that the, um, the British did was they went for what, what's known as carpet bombing. So it was really very, very difficult. So if you imagine a factory, even a great big factory, it was very difficult for um, a Lancaster bomber, you know, you know, way up in the sky, often at night, to hit the factory. Um, so that's why the RAF went in for big bombing raids, and they would essentially look at, seek to kind of flatten that part of a town or a city and hope that they'd get the, um, the, the, the factory. The Germans, sorry, the, the American Air Force um, went more for um, targeted bombing and they, they did a lot of daylight bombing. So there was a big difference between the two. But I came up with this idea, and this, of course, is complete fiction, that a, a Jewish scientist um, from Poznan, but who's in the Warsaw Ghetto, has got, uh, had been working on before the war, um, a device which would enable bombs to be launched far more accurately. Um, and he's got all the, the data with him, um, plus some, some of the equipment, but he's hiding in the Warsaw Ghetto, manages to get the message out. Um, and British intelligence are interested. So the guy escapes through Poland um, into Slovakia, uh, ends up in Austria, and then um, Sofia kind of brings escorts, if you like, from um, Vienna into Switzerland, and he starts working for the British. So that's the plot of Agent in Peril. So it kind of takes us from Poland into Switzerland um, and then in the Ruhr. And so you've mentioned you've rattled off a few cities there. But one one thing that I really enjoyed about uh, Agent in Berlin, and I'm sure it continues in Agent in Peril, is your descriptions of all the cities, sort of life, life during that time and the cities themselves. And I know you've got um, just before we started, I could see you had some maps in your hand and I'm looking at a huge map behind you. I, 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 how much research do you do on the cities that you're writing about? Um, in almost every case, and there are one or two exceptions, but in pretty much every case, if I feature a city, um, I've been there um, or, or I make a point game there. Not every single one. So I I was very keen to get, I, I felt I couldn't write the one, I'm, the book I'm currently writing without visiting Lyon, which I'd not been to other than you know, driving through it by mistake about 20 years ago. So I went to Lyon, you know, about halfway through writing the book, but, but, but early enough. Um, so I do try and visit them, although that's a whole other area, because if you if you visit a city in 2022, how much of a reflection is that on what the place was like in 1942? You know, well, even, yeah, even, yeah. So even though you look at a lot of city, a lot of European cities, 
uh, I mean, Berlin and Warsaw were destroyed um, pretty much. So, you know, it didn't look the same. But if you look at cities like, I mean, Vienna, the centre of Vienna, for instance, was, was relatively unscathed. Paris was, of course, notoriously unscathed um, because um, Van Trollwitz refused to destroy the city when, when Hitler ordered him. So you do look at city, London. I mean, I know, you know, if, if someone was visiting London now, it would be a very different city than it would have been um, before. So you have to bear that in mind, but it's still very useful to go to a place. You can get some kind of sense of um, distances and, and, and some feel of um, of what the place is like. But I rely a lot on contemporary maps. So this, I, I've got one here, for instance, of which is an original map that cost me quite a lot of money, but it's a street map of Berlin from about 1940. So is that, uh, is that an original street it's map? It's an original, right? yeah. Um, I mean, I got it quite some time ago and it wasn't cheap, but it, it's absolutely invaluable. And I've got, I've got a few street maps of, um, of Germany. The RAF, uh, produced these um, street maps of the Ruhr cities. So there's a series of about a dozen of them, um, which a, a company um, has reproduced them um, in the UK. And I've got those, they're very useful because you've got details on them, like the original names. I mean, almost, particularly in Germany, a vast number of street names changed. The Nazis changed a lot of street names because of people that were on streets that were named after undesirables like you know, liberals or socialists or Jews, or, you know, um, or people they simply didn't approve of. Adolf Hitler Platz was, there was one in every town and city as you can imagine. And then of course, after the war, they changed them again. So you can't rely on contemporary maps for, for, for Germany. You have to rely on um, maps from them. And I also use, um, I've got I've got a collection of Baedekers, um, the, the guidebooks from the 30s. So I've got France and Germany and Switzerland, um, and, and I use those an awful lot. I mean, of course, you can always, you know, say, well, do you need to be so accurate in terms of the names of hotels or restaurants or parks or squares or, or roads? Um, and the answer is you don't, you know, because you're writing fiction. So if you're writing fiction, you can legitimately make anything up. But I just take the view that if I go out of my way to be as accurate as possible, then somehow it makes the book more authentic and the book more credible. I, I, I look at myself as a bit of as an example. Is that if I'm looking at reading a book on the war and it's fiction and it's apparently authoritatively naming um, a street or a hotel, then I might well look at it and, you know, and Google it and think, actually, did that place really exist or is that true? So for, for me, it, it, but it also gives the it gives the book a bit of a, a framework on, on which to build it. When I can look at a map and it, it, to an extent, it brings the city a bit to life and you can see somewhere off there and it, it just feels right. And I think you can write with more confidence. I think if you're making up um, names of places and names of locations. It's not always like that. You know, sometimes I find somewhere where I just have got very scant information on. Um, but then I might talk more about a hotel near the station rather than a particular name of the hotel. I, I agree with you. Speaking as a reader, I, I love the fact that there are authentic names. It does certainly make it more... Uh 
more real because i think that's what we're all re- we're all wanting when we're reading books that are set in the past is is to get as close to the past as possible and if you have the yeah. legitimate names yeah i think certainly works. i think what you're doing with, with as, as a reader is you want to be taken into that world so w- when you're reading um historical fiction you want to be drawn into that period of history and i think if you can feel that what you're reading is is based on a degree of accuracy i think it makes it all easier i'll, I'll give you an example of, of one thing that happened in my second novel which is called the swiss spy and i it was i simply wanted to check in those days in in 1939 the, the main airport in london was croydon um and i simply wanted to check whether Croydon Air, when it stopped operating, was it August or September 1939? And I found something called the Croydon Airport Historical Society, and I sent the guy an email, and he replied very nicely. Um, and I effectively said, you know, when did civilian flights stop? And he said to me, well, by the way, they didn't really stop. He said civilian flights continued throughout Europe, throughout the Second World War. And he sent me a link um, Are they flying to Lisbon and places like that? Then? Well, yeah, what it was, was um, so British flights, particularly um, Lufthansa, which in those days was Luft and then Hans was the second word. As long as you were rich, either the airport you were flying from or the airport you were flying to was in a neutral country, the flights were, 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 were tolerated and happened. So what happened was that the KLM had a fleet of 12 DC-3s, which brought the, the Dutch government and the Dutch royal family and the Dutch gold to London. And then the KLM um, planes went to Bristol, Whitchurch Airport, which no longer exists, and they became BOAC. And they flew on the route from Bristol to Lisbon, which was a daily route um, and, and quite a famous route. Lufthansa were flying all over Europe. Um, the Swiss airline was, was flying all over Europe, as you can imagine. Um, so it's quite interesting, you know, that you had all these routes and I've used it a lot in my books. And I always you know, suspect, because I mentioned it at the end, that people might think, well, that's ridiculous. But it's not. It's all true. And it, it does open something up. And the, I do have a Lufthansa timetable from the war, um, it, which is, you know, you can work out how long a flight took and where it went. And it just opens up a whole storyline uh, and just kind of gives you something to work with. Yeah, that's amazing. So, so you've mentioned um, Agent in the Shadows, which is set in Lyon. So, are we going to get um, uh, are we going to get the French Resistance more involved in the in the series? A lot more because um, Lyon, for much of the war, was the centre of the French Resistance. So, the the, the, re- the c- couple of reasons for this, but the, the main reason was that um, certainly up to kind of forty three. Leon was in the free zone, the so-called free zone, Vichy. So it was less, um, it, it was a slightly easier um, regime, if you like, than, than, than Paris. Uh, Lyon was also quite a liberal city, always had quite a liberal reputation. And a lot of people left Paris and went to Lyon. So a lot of journalists um, moved from um, Paris to Lyon. A lot of Jewish people moved um, from Paris into Lyon. Um, and it was a perfect place for the resistance. So three or four of the big resistance um, organisations were based around Lyon. And it had a, it, it was also a centre of the printing industry. So pr- 
printing leaflets and newspapers were, were, was was also kind of quite easy. It wasn't terribly far from um, Switzerland, or it still isn't actually. Um, <laughs> so you know, in in that sense, Lyon was ideal for it. Um, so it was quite well established, um, and it changed a little bit to it later on as it got into forty four. Paris became more important and more prominent. But it was the place where, of course, in June 43, Jean Moulin was um, arrested. There was, Moulin was a, um, no one actually knew who Jean Moulin was until he was caught, but he'd been a fairly prominent prefect in um, France and then he disappeared. Um, but de Gaulle brought him over to London and said to him, look, you know, the resistance is a bit all over the place and there's lots of different organisations. and." Um, we needed it. We need it sorted out into one organisation, which, which which I can control. So Moulin um, was sent back to France, and his code name was Max. So no one really knew who Max was, um, but he was quite successful in pulling the resistance together from a fairly disparate group of competing organisations into a fairly unified one. And he had all the the, the leaders gathered at a house in the north of. Um, Leon in June, June the 21st, 1943. It was a doctor's surgery and they were all gathered there and they were betrayed and the Gestapo raided. Klaus Barbie was there, raided it and they caught them and he was broken under torture and they realised that Jean Moulin was Max. Um, but they, he ended up in a coma and died a couple of weeks later. Now, Klaus Barbie, some of our listeners may not be familiar with him. He's he's this. Can you just explain a little bit about who he was? Yeah, Klaus Barbie was was relatively young in the war. Actually, he was in his when when he went to um, to Lyon, he was in his late twenties. He'd been a Gestapo officer in Amsterdam, and then he was sent to France, and he was in um, Dijon. Then he went to Lyon, which, um, as I said, was the centre of resistance, so it needed to sort it out. And he became known. He was very brutal. He was very effective, um, and he became known as the Butcher of Lyon. Um, but after the war, he disappeared. Um, and it turned out um, that he'd been tolerated, as were a lot of Nazi war criminals, um, by the Americans, who, as soon as the war ended, um, saw the Nazis as less of a problem, and you know the threat was communism. So they tolerated a lot of people who they thought would be helpful for them. And it took a long time before Barbie was brought to justice, um, which he eventually was in. in he was taken, um, he was arrested, he, he was taken to, to France um, and he went on trial in Lyon in, I think it was... Uh, I, 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 the 90s? Was... No, it was earlier than that. It was, um, I'm thinking 83, I need to double check it. But um, he was put on trial. So at the Palais de Justice, in, um, which is on the, 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 the banks of the Somme, um, it was a very famous and, and beautiful court building, and it was a very important trial. And interestingly, um, the Gestapo prison in um, Lyon was a place called Fort Montluc, um, which was an old French military prison that the Gestapo had taken over, and it's where they it, it's where they tortured and murdered um, hundreds of prisoners. It's when um, Jean Milan was taken the night he was arrested and tortured and they symbolically kept Barbie there for um, a couple of days and, but, but he, then he had his trial and he was sentenced to life in, in prison 
and he didn't last, I think he lasted about five or six years before he died of, of cancer, I think it was. Um, but, but perhaps the most notorious Gestapo officer in the whole of, um, in the whole of occupied France, and the man who really escaped justice um, until it was kind of very, very late in the day. Yeah, it's mind-boggling that whole hunt for Nazis after the war, uh, or, or lack of it, I, yeah. I guess. Um, was talking to Giles Milton on the pod a couple of weeks ago, talking about how it wasn't really taken that seriously in Berlin in the immediate aftermath of the war. It's one thinks now, you know, if if anyone says anything on social media, they're hunted down merciless, mercilessly. I know. It, it was it was for a couple of reasons. I think I think I mean obviously the big prominent Nazis um, were, were done for, um, uh, um, you know those who were arrested were, were put on trial. I think that there was a feeling that it was overwhelming the number of people that there were. Once you looked at middle ranking officers, so they had to be a lot more selective. And then of course there was the whole thing about as West Germany came into existence and seeing the threat from East Germany, it all just became a little bit too much trouble. So I was doing some um, research on the chapter I was writing today, which is set in Lublin in um, July 1944. The city was um, was liberated by the Red Army on the 23rd of July 1944. But the, the day before, they massacred 300 prisoners in Lublin Castle, which the Gestapo used as a prison. And the guy in charge of it, who was in charge of the SS in Lublin, got away with it and was eventually arrested in 62 and didn't go on trial until 66. And then he was just released. And, you know, so, but, but by any measure, you know, he was a war criminal and a serious war criminal, not, not just um, someone who was obeying orders. You know, he ran the SS in Lublin. He, he was there and he ordered the massacre of 300 prisoners who were most, mostly kind of Polish resistance and some Russian POWs, and he murdered them. The Poles executed a lot. I mean, the Poles, um, of course, after, you know, for, for a year or two after the war, went after a lot of people um, and got them, and they, they didn't obviously have the same attitude. It's a fascinating, fascinating part of the the history of the Second World War. So, um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of your influences, Alex. Um, now, I know you'd you've, you'd mentioned in an interview with us uh, um, some time ago, you'd mentioned Alan First had, is a, a big influence on you. Uh, I'm not that familiar with him. So, I was, what is it about him, and and who who first of all, who is he? Well, first was um, is an American journalist, and as I understand it, kind of having read a couple of interviews, um, he worked for Rolling Stone magazine and one or two other magazines. And I think when Glad in the early days of the Soviet Union, kind of opening up and then breaking up, he'd, he'd been over to Moscow and kind of got fascinated by the whole thing. And then you know his family had. Um, had originally been from that part of the world and emigrated to the States. I think he felt a strong connection. So he kind of moved to Paris for a while and kind of wrote there. And his books are all set in Europe, um, either in, in the 1930s leading up to and then during the Second World War. Um, so his agents tend to be kind of French or American, you know, a variety of people. 
And to me, it was just reading his books, it, it just felt that um, somehow there was an atmosphere that they evoke that I could identify with and was fascinated by, that you could be writing about the war um, and writing, writing about what cities and towns were like, what, what life was like for real people, the emotions of it all, that the, the people involved in it, that the goodies weren't necessarily all heroes, the baddies aren't necessarily all quite what they seem. And I just, I think that's been quite influential that you could do that. And also to write about the war in a way that um, isn't necessarily just about military campaigns, as important as they are, that you sometimes use those as a backdrop, that you use the course of the war and how things are going as a backdrop, but they're also a canvas on which you can kind of paint someone's uh, a story about someone as they're moving around and the relationships that they have as well. Um, I think that, and so I've always found, um, Alan, I mean, Alan Versus has written a lot of books, some some of the earlier ones in particular, have been like The World at Night, um, has just been remarkable. Um, I would you know, strongly recommend him, anyone who hasn't been a, read them. I'll put a link in, in the show notes. Um, you mentioned the atmosphere there, and that just occurred to me, because when reading Agent in Berlin, there was a a line you'd included and there is an atmosphere, particularly by describing the city as it was, but there is an atmosphere as well, you know, of, of these agents who are all working in a in a city that is, well, it's run by Nazis, so they are they they are the enemy within. And the, there was a line that you mentioned about Sunday being a, a a less stressful day than any other day in the week, which kind of that made quite good sense to me you know um with sunday was a day off and everyone's going for coffee and cake and then you can just sort of feel it feels more relaxing for an agent within the city it's it's a nice touch i thought yeah i think you, i think what you try to do is um and it's not always very easy but you you try and paint some kind of picture of of, of what life was like and it wasn't always about um fighting and, and the war although that was clearly omnipresent i mean one of the big things i i used a lot um th th there's a very good book by william shira um i don't know if you can i mean william shira of course is best known for his book about you know the rise and fall of the third Reich. but he was a an american journalist based in berlin um and i'm looking at it now and he wrote a book called berlin diary 1939 to 1941 um I'll link that in as well. Yeah, and because of course, 41 being um, Pearl Harbor in December 41, which is also referred to in Agent in Berlin. Um, so he was, so America was, the United States was neutral um, until December 41, so he was able to operate as a journalist. And it's a fascinating book because of the detail that there was. And then sometimes you, you're kind of slightly caught by surprise when you see that they kind of went to the theatre or they went out for a meal or to a cafe or they had friends around and you think hang on you know there was a war on but there was also that side of it as well and the rations I mean you know life even though um, Germany up to certainly up to that stage was doing well in the war you know they were winning um, but life was still becoming quite hard for people you know rations hit very badly it was hard to get hold of fuel for heating you know, these kind of things which you, you do try and bring across was very much the reality um, of war for people 
they found that, uh, that, that that even in the early stages of war, when their troops were being killed, is that it, one of the things that brought it home for people was the death notices in the paper, and also the very subtle wording. You know, someone might put in a death notice for their son, um, and just say, you know, beloved son of, and then someone else might say about their sons and, and say, you know, we died for the Fuhrer. And you can read in between the lines, you know, see where people's it's not so much sympathies lay, but but how, but what their emotions were. And I think it's trying to get to that ordinary life. And I've done a couple of um, when I did um, my third um, novel, which was Vienna Spies. I was kind of fortunate enough to interview a couple of people that had lived in Vienna before the war, um, and, you know, who, who eventually became refugees over here. But that was interesting. Um, and you know, to, to get a sense of what life was like there, and you, you try and get that across, but at the same time, you know that you know you weren't there, you weren't an eyewitness, so you've got to be, you, you, you're, and you're still writing fiction, so you can kind of frame it in some way. Mm. And and Berlin at the time was not particularly well. I was reading. I was reading this in Roger Morehouse's book, First to Fight, when Germany invaded Poland in 1939, that the population in Germany were not exactly wildly enthusiastic about going to war. They had thought they'd seen all these um, prior invasions that had just been uh, that, that had just occurred without any uh, any extended fighting with the Sudetenland and Austria. They were told. And, yeah, they, they were told. That there wouldn't be a war, because as as you say, um, I, I mean, Austria was arguably not a not an invasion. You know, they kind of they went in and um, they were kind of greeted with you know, open arms and everything. But um, so, but Sudetenland, likewise, they just went in without any resistance. So all the German propaganda, and it's actually what the Germans believe, is that the is that the Allies or the British and the French would cave in, that they wouldn't go to war. So the message had been there will be no war. So they had some explaining to do in September 39 when suddenly there is a war. And and even in the early stages of it, which is the point I was making before, when it was going quite well for, for Germany and then, of course, with the Blitzkrieg and sweeping through Western Europe, even then it became quite hard quite quickly, you know, when you know that people are dying. And if you've got a city like Berlin, which which was had traditionally been a fairly liberal city, is in, in I've read you know enough books during the war that you do get a sense. I mean, Roger Morehouse wrote an excellent book called um, Berlin at War, which gives a very good sense of, of what Berlin was like during the war. And of course, you think it was a totalitarian regime and it was brutal and, and people were spied on and. Notoriously, children were meant to inform on their parents if they said anything out of order. Notwithstanding all that, people knew how to knew who to trust, or they thought they knew how to trust. And people talked to each other, and there, there might be things like um, I think I think Roger talks about it in his book. Um, there might be very coded things like on a Monday, someone might say to someone, "You know, did you have meat for lunch yesterday?" Which might be an excuse, you know, someone, and then the re response might be, oh, "We just can't get hold of it these days," and that might open up a conversation there. But the, but the, that was definitely an issue that, that they they weren't supposed to go to war, and they had to try and explain it away, and they never really did. And then, of course, once the impact of the war started to bite in Germany, 
it, it became a constant issue. Mm. Well, I think it's captured very well in, in your novel. So um, I encourage everyone to get it. Now, we're running a little bit out of time, but I wanted to talk briefly about some of your other influences, um, partly because you have been described, Alex, as a new Le Carre, which must be a bloody nightmare for any author writing in the similar genre to be to have that label applied. Particularly because we've got the same agent <laughs> um, or the same agency. But uh, yeah, um, well, yeah, I, I suppose it's, you know, if I was writing a book about wizards, um, which I'm not, um, but were I to write a book about wizards, um, you know, inevitably somewhere along the line, you know, people start comparing books with J.K. Rowling or something like that. So if you're writing in the, in the field of espionage, um, people you know, might, stay to, might start to make comparisons. Actually, the books are quite different because he is Cold War. And I haven't, I t in one of my books, The Berlin Spies, I do get into the Cold War. And I'm looking at a potential new series, which might be a bit more, I'm particularly interested in the early Cold War. So it, it, they're different type of, types of books, actually, in, 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 the, in, in the area that they're looking at. I think that's what I would say. But fair enough. Do you have a do you have a do you have a favourite, Le Carre? Um, well, the the earlier ones. I, th I think I think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy still takes some beating. I think that whole. Um, theme of betrayal and the, and the mystery of, of, of who is doing who is doing the betraying that that is that's a, a theme that that, that that you never tire of and he tells it so well so i think if someone was going to say you know which which le carré should i read um i would say unhesitatingly that one i suppose the spy that came in from the cold which was his first one and, and also has some of the characters um are in common aren't they um, with Tinker Taylor, but I think Tinker Taylor was just brilliant. Mm. I think the less favourite ones were the ones where you know set, set about pet, petrol, you know, petroleum companies and drugs. Companies oh, and things like more that. recent ones. Yeah, the more recent ones. But um, well, he did go back to you know at the end, one of his last two would did, did go back to that theme of the Cold War and betrayal. Yeah, they're very good. Uh, one thing that occurred to me whilst reading an Agent in Berlin, particularly with Barney's sort of, it's almost like a splinter group within MI6, is Looking Glass War, where this, there's a splinter, I don't know if you've read that one, yeah. it's a splinter group that has almost been forgotten about. And um, yeah, that's one thing that did slightly occur to me when reading it. Well, I think, I think we think of um, organisations like, I mean, you know, Having, I mean, I worked at the BBC, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to um, describe the BBC as like an espionage organisation. But having said that, you know, when you work for a large organisation, th there are factions and groups within it, and there are um, senior people who become mentors to other people, and you might hit your, uh, you know, you might be associated with them for a while, and that's what organisations are like. And particularly at MI6, I mean, um, Michael, my, my publisher and editor has a couple of times you know mentioned like have I overdone um the, the the old school connection once or twice you know too many I mean I never actually mentioned the school but there are kind of one or two schools that I imagine were quite well represented with MI6 in those days but I think that was very much part of it you know there were factions there were people who disliked 
people for purely personal reasons or there were turf wars you know that that agent is mine or you know i'm looking over after that part of france or you, know, you leave that alone or they're jealous of someone coming in who's had a couple of run a couple of very successful networks and um, they want the funding to do this so you know that's what it's like in organizations isn't it there's all the kind of office politics that go on and i i don't think um an intelligence organization is immune from that probably on the contrary no absolutely i mean having read i guess the one most recent one i've read is the ben mcintyre a spy among friends when kim philby is describing oh i think it was nicholas elliott who was his old friend both became very senior in mi6 and nicholas elliott was recruited in a bar at white's yeah the gentleman's club so yeah i'm sure you're absolutely right to include all that old school tie type stuff well look we're coming to the end of it um we are at the end of it alex thank you so much for all your time it's been really interesting hearing all the way how you research it and how you describe it uh, the, the the atmosphere of 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 being in berlin during the second world war and now with agent in peril coming out on the 7th of july i wish you all the best with that i'm very excited in our next issue of the magazine we've got a piece from you as well with your polish connection i won't go into too much detail because i haven't read it yet uh but thank you very much for coming on that's a pleasure thank you very much indeed thanks for listening I just want to give a shout out to a couple of my wonderful listeners. Deborah Steen has had a hell of a time recently with a multiple knee and back operations. But luckily, that's been a dream for her because she's listened to all the podcasts during a recovery. So I do encourage you all to get injured and sit back and listen about history. Also, from the great country of Romania, Ama Sushu. And I hope I got the pronunciation right. I'm sure I haven't. She sent such a lovely message to me on the Twitter. Thanks to all you listeners. You guys do drive me. Thank you and good night.